and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. For those who may not have listened to all the episodes of our Life on Harrison series thus far, let's do a quick recap of where we're at. Harrison was born in Virginia, ended up through a convoluted path joining the Army, and going off to fight in the Old Northwest, what we now know today as the Midwest. He married, got involved in territorial government, and became the governor of the Indiana Territory. After a number of years in that position, he was called back into military service prior to the War of 1812, where he fought against the Native American Confederation in the Battle of Tippecanoe, which would serve as the origin of his later nickname, Old Tippecanoe. He was put in charge of military operations in the West for a time and proved himself a rather capable commander, but, due to political intrigues against him, ultimately resigned his commission. If you want to learn more of how we got to this point, past episodes are available on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. Though Harrison was going home under a cloud due to the machinations of Secretary of War John Armstrong, the Madison administration was not done with him yet. A council with the remaining friendly Native Americans located in Ohio was forthcoming in the summer in Greenville, Ohio. The administration started by asking for Harrison's advice on how to seek the removal of the remaining tribes to land in the Illinois Territory. Then, deciding that they needed more than advice, Madison appointed Harrison as a commissioner to act on the federal government's behalf at the council. Harrison gladly took up the duty, and upon his arrival at the encampment on July 3rd, ordered the council house that had been erected to be, quote, moved about 35 feet onto historic ground, the exact site of General Wayne's councils with the tribesmen at Greenville in 1795. Harrison was always one for paying homage to history. By the time the council began on July 8th, some 4,000 native peoples had assembled, representing eight tribes. The council would last most of the month, with a treaty being finalized on July 22nd, which outlawed the neutrality of Native Americans in the war between Britain and the United States, and with the U.S. pledging to protect all tribes that allied with them. It also reaffirmed existing boundary lines between the native-held lands and those of the settlers. With this, Harrison would return home, but home for him was no longer in Vincennes. With Harrison having resigned his governorship in December 1812 in order to allow himself to focus more on military operations, the Harrisons had decided to move back to the log cabin that had been the first home of William and Anna Harrison back in the 1790s on what had been Judge Sims' land in North Bend, Ohio. However, with the couple having expanded their family to ten children, and with Harrison's fame necessitating a space for entertaining expected guests, they could hardly be expected to make do with a small cabin. The expanded home was described by Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves as follows, quote, Externally, the logs were covered with clapboards, within by wainscoting, and two spacious wings were added on either side. A wide L, which ran back from the center, made the whole a commodious dwelling of 16 rooms. The original log cabin became a large living room, and adjoining it in the west wing was a dining room of unusual size. Within a short time, the general's home, the log cabin, became a famed rendezvous for immigrants, tourists, travelers, and gentlemen from the east, many of whom came regularly consigned. The mansion at North Bend, facing south, stood about 300 yards back of the Ohio River. A spring arising in the hill above watered an extensive lawn. 
Eastward were grass-covered knolls and a deep valley. The grounds were shaded by locusts, catalpa, and evergreen trees, and a formal garden of fruits and flowers was planted. Harrison's 3,000 acres covered several miles of undulating country back of the river, running westerly to the fertile delta. Though not the brick mansion of Grouseland, neither was it the ramshackle bare-bones cabin envisioned in the campaign literature of 1840. The home did not survive to the present day, but I will post a drawing done of it on the blog. Harrison would be called away from farming operations in North Bend for one final Indian council to take place in Detroit. The war with Britain was finally drawing to a close, but the frontier was still agitated, mostly due to white settlers killing Native Americans. Harrison warned the federal government in a letter to the new Secretary of War, Alexander Dallas, dated June 26, 1815, that only two choices remained. Quote, we must fall upon them, meaning the Native Americans, and murder them all, or we must still pursue the course which has hitherto been followed so successfully vis-a-vis -vis that of obtaining their confidence and attachment by treating them with justice and humanity and convincing them that their only resource against want and misery is in the annuities they receive from us it cannot but happen that the indians are often in the wrong but they are generally misrepresented and a spirit of hostility kept up against them though this sounds highly patronizing to modern ears one has to keep in mind the mainstream sentiments prevailing at the time while not excusing the damage done to the native populations by the policies pursued by the federal administration or by Harrison as an agent of that government, there does seem to be some sincerity in the continued commitment to help the Native Americans, though I'm sure the added bonus of possibly getting more lands for white settlers didn't hurt either. Harrison would not meet with the Native American leaders and representatives until after the Treaty of Ghent had been signed, ending the War of 1812. The end of the war would mark a shift in U.S. Native American relations, though not necessarily for the better for the Native peoples. With the conclusion of the war, the Native tribes would no longer be able to play the Americans and British off of one another politically and economically. The British would finally withdraw from the Old Northwest, so the Americans would have a monopoly on the fur trade and would be able to turn their attentions post-war to, quote, civilize the Indians. The treaty negotiated in Detroit by Harrison and signed on September 8th, the Treaty of Springwells, did not even require any cession of tribal lands by tribes that had sided with the British and restored, quote, all previous possessions and rights. As even the prophet himself signed the Treaty of Springwells, it seemed that Harrison's policies as governor and military commander had ultimately resulted in the United States being in the dominant position for the foreseeable future. Indeed, as noted by Harrison biographer James Green, quote, The rush of immigration that came after Wayne's Treaty in 1794 was a small thing in comparison with the tremendous westward migration that followed the War of 1812. While vindicated in the matter of Indian policy, Harrison still faced the charges of fiscal malfeasance and undue influence against him. With Armstrong out of the picture, another rival took up the baton in an attempt to gain political power. For those who missed the previous episode, a formal complaint had been made by a federal contractor named Benjamin G. Orr against Harrison that Harrison, rather than going through Orr, had made special purchases while in command of the military forces in the West from a merchant based in Cincinnati named John H. Payot. 
You'll have to listen to the previous episode to hear why Payot was ultimately even named by Congress as one of the most honorable and patriotic merchants to serve the United States during the war. But for now, just know that there is much to doubt in the motives subscribed to Orr's claims. The Indiana Territory's delegate to Congress, Jonathan Jennings, was no fan of Harrison. The tension between the two began when Jennings initially ran for the delegate seat against Harrison's favorite candidate, Thomas Randolph, in 1808. Despite Harrison's active efforts against him, Jennings would ultimately prevail, and he would never forget Harrison's opposition. He had already made charges against Harrison in Congress, alleging that he had used his influence to benefit his friends rather than serve the public good, but he felt this time that he had something that would stick. However, as many would find over the years, Jennings underestimated the lengths that Harrison would go in order to clear his name. In this case, after gathering evidence in his defense, Harrison wrote a letter on December 20, 1815, intended for Speaker of the House Henry Clay, and transmitted through Representative John McLean, calling for a full investigation into his official conduct. Clay agreed to do so, and a committee headed by Representative Richard Mentor Johnson went to work. Meanwhile, Harrison dealt from afar with a couple of other charges by Jennings and another political rival, Representative Joseph Deshaw of Kentucky. But finally, the idea was put in his head by his former aide, Charles S. Todd, that he might have better luck to, quote, meet the insinuations made by your enemies upon an equal footing by getting himself elected to Congress. Harrison knew that, given his fame from the war and the fact that John McLean's seat was coming vacant, it would be an easy proposition. Besides, as Todd also wrote to Harrison, assuming a seat in Congress would help to, quote, establish for yourself a fame which cannot be affected by their, meaning his enemies, base slander. Despite all that Harrison had in his favor going into the election, he did face competition from five other candidates. His primary opponent would be a lawyer named T.R. Ross, and the opposition would force him to outline his political goals in office beyond just answering charges against his character. Harrison would cite his desire to develop a better plan for organizing and maintaining the militia, financial relief for war veterans, and the repeal of the Compensation Law, a recently passed bill raising the pay of Congress, as his primary aims in Washington. His efforts would win the day, as he beat Ross by a two-to-one margin, with the other candidates even further behind, and gain the voters' affirmation both to fill the remainder of McLean's term in the current Congress, but also to a full term in the next Congress. Mr. Harrison was headed to Washington. However, the Washington he was going to was a shaken town. It had only been the national capital for a decade and a half. In 1810, the census reported the District of Columbia as having just over 24,000 residents total, with around a third of those residents being in the city limits. At the time, what we now know as Alexandria, Virginia, was actually Alexandria, D.C. It was a part of the district that would later revert back to Virginia. The city had gotten off to a rocky start as the government had to move in while work was still being done on many buildings, with a congressman who had attended the first session of Congress held in the city describing it as, quote, a city in ruins. But, as noted by historian Constance McLaughlin Green in her book on the history of Washington, D.C., quote, By 1812, Washingtonians dared believe that Congress would never move the capital from the banks of the Potomac. As that anxiety evaporated, fears that political impotence might hamstring the city's economic growth also dwindled. 
Then came the British. In August 1814, British forces set fire to many government buildings, including the Capitol, the White House, and the War and Treasury buildings, in retaliation for the burning of the Canadian Capitol at York in 1813. Though it should be noted that the burning of York was, quote, probably the unauthorized work of American sailors, rather than a deliberate act of arson, as was the burning of D.C. To add insult to injury, a tornado struck before the British withdrew and damaged numerous other buildings in the city. By the time Harrison arrived in 1816, the city was still trying to recover two years later. A temporary building called the Brick Capitol had been erected for Congress to meet in while the U.S. Capitol was being reconstructed. Harrison assumed his seat in the House, along with folks who would come to be well-known figures in his later life, including but not limited to Daniel Webster, John C. Calhoun, and John Tyler of Virginia. Besides getting to work on pushing for financial relief for veterans, the main task of Representative Harrison in 1817 was to develop a new plan to organize the nation's militia system. Harrison would serve as the chairman of a committee assigned the task and would take on the lion's share of the report. As we touched upon in the episodes about the War of 1812, the militia was seen as being unreliable, and as Harrison did during the Battle of Tippecanoe, Military commanders had to pay close attention to the militia to ensure that they didn't panic and turn to run. Their usefulness was hampered by a few conditions. First, though it was the Congress that would call the militia forth, the power to appoint officers to lead the militia and the training of the militia was constitutionally held by the state governments. This split of authority could wreak havoc on militia organization, especially as was noted by Leonard White, there was a, quote, lack of a professional military tradition in this, a frontier country, and an unwillingness on the part of a restless population to endure discipline. Thus, Harrison put forth a plan that met with approbation by both the Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury, both of whom we'll discuss in more detail. To put it succinctly, Harrison proposed to, quote, make every citizen a soldier through universal military training. The Treasury Secretary, William H. Crawford of Georgia, even drafted a constitutional amendment to grant the federal government the authority to assume such a level of control over the training as Harrison's bill proposed. But it was not to be. Congress laid his plan on the table. There were other fish to fry in a nation tired of war. Another change was coming to Washington. 1816 had not only seen Harrison's election to the House, but also James Monroe's election as president and in March 1817, he was inaugurated as the fifth president of the United States. Monroe had long played a role in American history prior to his inauguration. He had been an aide-de-camp to Washington during the Revolution, then had served in the Virginia State Legislature, the Continental Congress, the Virginia Constitutional Ratification Convention, and the U.S. Senate, before being the nation's diplomatic representative to France, Spain, and Great Britain. In the Madison administration, he had primarily served as Secretary of State, though he had a stint where he took on the War Department along with his responsibilities at State, the only person to date to run both departments concurrently. Though not close, Harrison had dealt with Monroe during his tenure with the War Department, and despite his limited experience on the national stage, Harrison was proposed for the Secretary of War position in the incoming administration. However, Monroe would first ask Henry Clay, who declined then Isaac Shelby of Kentucky, who also declined. Monroe would ultimately pick John C. Calhoun for the post. As the administration went on, 
Harrison would not have a favorable opinion of Monroe, despite similarities in their political outlooks and positions. By 1825, Harrison was writing to his nephew, who was named, if you can imagine it, Benjamin Harrison, that, quote, I believe there was never a greater hypocrite on earth than James Monroe. His enmity to me has been without bounds and is altogether unaccountable. However, as it was what would come to be known as the era of good feelings, and there was little public criticism of Monroe, who was seen as being a, quote, patriot leader, above party, and a symbol of national unity. Harrison's criticisms of the president would remain confined to private correspondence while he and other political leaders engaged in, quote, bitter personal and factional disputes during the next eight years. Harrison was at least able to achieve resolution of one personal dispute in his first few months in Congress. Being on the scene, Harrison was able to more aptly answer charges against him with his management of the affairs of the Army of the Northwest, to the point that, in a report issued by a committee chaired by Representative Richard Mentor Johnson on January 23, 1817, it was concluded, quote, unanimously, that General Harrison stands above suspicion as to any pecuniary or improper connection with the officers of the commissariat, and did not wantonly or improperly interfere with the rights of the contractors. On the contrary, his policies had been inspired by a laudable zeal and devotion. A congressman from Massachusetts on the committee, John W. Hurlbert, noted that, quote, the general, in the exercise of his official capacities, had neglected his private concerns to his material detriment. With this vindication under his hat, after Monroe was inaugurated and the congressional session concluded, Harrison left Washington, D.C., bound not for his home in North Bend, but rather for his ancestral home on the James River. Harrison was headed back to Berkeley. It's here where we'll leave Congressman Harrison for today. Until next time, if you have any questions or comments, I'm available by email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. Source notes for this episode can be found on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. And if you're not listening from there already, past episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher. I hope you'll join me next time on an episode that I'm calling The Era of Ill Feelings. Until then, dear listener, take care and thanks for listening.